I remember it was in the 1980s, uh, and I was taking the subway train from Newton into Boston. It was back when I was just getting into Confucianism. It was winter, it was cold, there was a lot of slush around. Finally, the train barreled to a stop, and I got on, and I was looking for a seat, and that's when I noticed a problem. And it turned out to be the first time something happened around me that I understood from a Confucian perspective. There was uh, one open seat, but some loud-mouthed guy had his feet up on it, and it made a slushy mess. He was a village tough kind of guy scruffy hair, cheap clothes, and he was showing off how unrestrained or free-spirited he was. Showing off, showing that he could do whatever he wanted to do. And I noticed he was being deliberate. He was speaking aloud, speaking to be heard, if you know what I mean. So we could say his ego was involved, and you sense that he was maybe capable of violence, so nobody messed with him even though in a sense he was messing with all of us on the subway train. There was, in other words, something kind of barbaric about the guy. Now that's a, that's a politically incorrect word, I know. And look, I certainly do not mean to imply any 19th century style racism, if it matters this was a white guy on the subway. But that's the word I'll use. Barbarian, and I'll use it because I think it helps us understand the Confucian mindset. Watching this guy was interesting. We've all encountered similar things, I suppose, but uh, this was an aha moment for me. A moment when seeing the opposite of Confucian propriety, the opposite of how a Confucian gentle person would behave, taught me something. It brought me an insight, an insight into what Confucius was up to. Hi, I'm Andy Abel, and this is the Confucian Podcast. Welcome to the first episode. You know... Confucianism is so interesting and so important and so poorly understood here in the United States that I'm very excited to be doing this. It's high time we had a podcast on Confucianism. And I want to return to the example of that jerk on the train, but I need to go over some basics first, some real basics, like what exactly is Confucianism. Confucianism is sometimes said to be a religion, which is really a stretch. Uh, sometimes it's called a philosophy, and it, it does address aspects of the human condition. It is kind of a philosophy, but it's mostly something else. The Confucian program, ultimately, I think, concerns creating a society that works, a truly civil society, uh, a harmonious society, and that is something that's worth paying attention to at any time, but I think 
for those of us here in the United States, um, in these increasingly dark and uncivil times, uh, I think it's really worth paying attention to. Confucianism is by no means perfect. Uh, the sexism is pretty crazy, really. Uh, but Confucianism is one of the most influential lines of thought in human history. And now that the Chinese dragon has woken, uh, it's more important than ever to understand China. And it's impossible to understand China without some understanding of Confucianism. And more than that, though, it's just really interesting and very different from the kinds of um, intellectual approaches to human life and society that we have uh, in the West, in the United States. Confucius was born in what is now Shandong, China in 551 BC. The name Confucius is a little tricky. It's a Latinized version of Kung Fu Zi, uh, coined by the Jesuits in China in the 17th century, Kung Fu Zi, Confucius, you know, it's reasonably close. But that's not actually his name. Kung Fu Zi translates as Master Kung. You'll also hear him called Kung Zi, which means pretty much the same thing. But his given name was Qiu Kong was his surname. Last names first in Chinese, so Kong Qiu. Confucius's name was actually Kong Qiu. To make matters more confusing, more Confucian confusion, that is, uh, his given name was Zhongni. So, but anyway, I'll, I'll just use the name Confucius. One story has Confucius born of a field union, which is to say that he was born illegitimately, which wasn't uncommon then. Uh, for me, this term, field union, conjures up the image of an errant knight, uh, you know, out in the wilds, meeting up with a lovely Chinese damsel, and I'll just let your imagination take it from there. Anyway, Confucius was raised by his mother in poverty uh, and grew up to be something of a military man, as was his father, uh, who died when Confucius was very young. But Confucius is known primarily as a scholar and teacher, not as a soldier. His life uh, roughly coincides with Pythagoras, the Greek philosopher and mathematician. So Confucius is basically a generation before Socrates, if that helps you place him in time. Confucius was, by all accounts, quite a scholar. He was fond of poetry and music, and he traveled. And this is really important. This is one of the most important things about him. He traveled around trying to get a king uh, to adopt his approach to running a kingdom. And he failed in this. He failed in the big thing he set out to do. And more than that, the uh, first emperor of China, the emperor of the terracotta statues fame, uh, tried to eradicate Confucianism. He was very hard on Confucian scholars, burning texts, and so the story goes, burying many Confucian scholars alive. Uh, you know, I have to say, if you really want to compete with alternative philosophers, it, without a doubt, it's remarkably effective to bury them alive, although I, I can't say I recommend it myself. But anyway... In this case, um, another reason I wouldn't recommend it is that it didn't work. Despite everything, uh, Confucius's teachings, after you know having been in, after an attempt to eradicate them, uh, 
and all kinds of pressures. Eventually, it came out more or less on top of the pack of social and political reformers' teachings. And so he came to exert enormous influence on Chinese culture. And what's just amazing and intriguing is that although we have thinkers in the West, in Europe and the Americas, we have thinkers who are like the other thinkers of Confucius's time, we, we don't really have a branch of thought that's much like Confucianism until maybe just recently, and I'll talk about that, but we don't quite have anything like Confucianism, and um, here it is this huge thing uh, in Asia uh, and in human history up and running for thousands of years. I mean, it, it just it's intriguing to me that... Uh, we don't have better understanding of Confucianism in the West, which is really, it's an interesting thing. Anyway, we don't know much about Confucius himself, but we can understand Confucianism in relation to the social context in which it arose. You see, Confucian thought emerged in times of trouble. There was dysfunction, uh, war, rapid and disruptive change, corruption, he was born during what was called the spring and autumn period and died in the warring states period, uh, to give you an idea. Uh, the Confucian texts, um, the Analects, um, and the other texts um, were written during the warring states period. And the name says it, warring states period was a time of conflict and social disruption. And even in these um, dark times here in the United States, we have a lot of social stability. The United States remains very stable. We've had one civil war. Uh, we've had the same con constitution since 1789. Our institutions have real staying power. Think of Harvard, uh, founded in 1636 and still going strong. You know, that's a long time for a social institution. Uh, people participate in elections, more or less. They still try their cases in court and mostly pay their taxes and so on. Um, <clears throat> so even despite our kind of dystopian sci-fi movies and despite the current uh, spate of school shootings and some dangerous neighborhoods here and there, it's actually kind of hard for Americans to imagine real chaos, real social chaos. Imagine Bill Gates as a military strongman sweeping from the Northwest to annex parts of California, countered by Trump's armies marching in from the East and a failing Bush dynasty holding out in Texas. Um, you know, warlords uh, battling for power and leaving wastelands behind them. Imagine mass movements of refugees, families destroyed, uh, shaky local governments throughout the United States, violence in the streets. Uh, you get the idea. The main Confucian texts, like other writings from that time, were responding to a breakdown of the social order. So the question on everybody's mind was how to make things work. And, you know, how did things work before? Now, 
Nowadays, in the United States, many people have a sense that something is out of whack, that our society is coming unhinged. It's now hard to remember that things were different not that long ago. Not that long ago, you could drive up to the front door of the White House and ask a guard for directions. I mean, imagine. Uh, the White House is now barricaded to keep people away. Things can change. What we've covered so far brings us to a straightforward question. If the good society is the one with the good people, people who behave well, people who are civil and cooperative, what do you have to do to get the good people? It's like classic management theory. The better corporation is the one with the better people, so how do you get better people? How do you train them? How do you keep them? What works? Is it law and order? with strict punishments, carrots and sticks? Or do you assume that people naturally mostly have good hearts and if you just leave them alone and keep them well-fed, they'll just do naturally fine. You know, they'll do okay. Let them eat, let them eat cake, right? Or does it have something to do with money or the lack of it? Uh, or does it really all come down to power or inequality or sexuality? And wait a minute, if we're talking about how to get people to behave, does that mean Confucius was like a kind of schoolmarm? Young man, take those shoes off that seat this instant. If you remember Nurse Ratchet from the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, that horrible character who was a kind of control freak, some people see Confucianism as something like Nurse Ratchet's approach to the social order. You know, force everybody to toe the line. Uh, alas, that seems to be the Chinese Communist Party's vision of Confucianism these days. Uh, they seem to be treating it as a means to shore up compliance with their dictatorship, which is not just sad, it's absolutely deplorable and not a bit Confucian. But no, actually Confucianism comes at things differently. It's not about carrots and sticks. It's not about browbeating people to act a certain way. It gets at something deeper. The, the order, the, the kind of social order, the, the working order of society that just seems to be there naturally, but that is not at all natural. It's actually man-made. We human beings make our societies. They don't come to us uh, straight out of nature. And so there's a subtle but very important difference in how Confucian thinkers conceive of the social order. And we can see this difference in the current discussions, the discourse, the current discourse on America's social problems. At this time in the history of the United States, many people have this feeling that, people, that things are falling apart, and the result has been widespread, widespread speculation about the possible causes. Is it bad leadership? Should we join the Stop Trump movements? Or is there an evil deep state that's preventing Trump from fixing America's problems? Others say the problem is too much sex and violence in the media. Or is it that the country somehow you know, has lost its Judeo-Christian bearings? Is our social background due to social media? Are Islamic terrorists or white supremacists to blame? Are the problems due to economic decline, or is it economic inequality? Notice the underlying assumption of all of these positions. Every one of these positions assume that something bad is happening, that removing the bad thing will make things better. 
Of course, it's reasonable to consider such things, but the Confucian approach goes to the individual. What has to happen to make the kind of people needed to make a society that is building up rather than falling apart? Okay, so what we've covered in this first episode, um, I've tried to make the connection between Confucianism and the social order. That's something I'll return to. And I've argued that Confucianism speaks to the incivility of our times. And I've suggested that Confucianism may have something to offer us today. Next time, we'll cover one of the most famous lines from the Confucian writings and continue to explore what is different about Confucianism. Please email me at confucianpodcast.com if you have any questions or concerns, and please like the podcast, that matters a lot. And if you have enjoyed this podcast and would like it to continue, please introduce it to friends and family members. I'm afraid that the Confusion podcast is not likely to be a big draw for most podcast listeners. Uh, Not as big as true crime stories and politics and stuff like that. So I'll need to rely on the kinds of referrals that only individuals like you can make. And I want to give a shout out to Oku, who produced our theme music. You can learn more about him at okumusic.com. Till next time, express kindness, develop your mind, avoid all depravity, and serve the common good. I'm Andy Abel. Thank you for listening.